the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is January 20th, 2021, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, What a Difference an APP Makes. In the diagnostic workup of chest pain and abdominal pain patients presenting to the emergency department, our guest skeptic is Dr. Lauren Westifer. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Bay State. She is the co-founder of the excellent podcast called Foamcast and a pulmonary embolism and implementation science researcher. Dr. Westover serves as the social media editor and research methodology editor for Annals of Emergency Medicine and associate editor for the New England Journal of Medicine, Journal Watch Emergency Medicine. I'm really surprised you have any time to do this, Lauren. <laughs> Always time for you, Ken. Well, you've been on the SGM before. You've got your own podcast that you share with Jeremy Faust. You've been out there speaking quite publicly about COVID and issues like that. So it's great to finally have you on as an SGM hot off the press faculty member. So excited to be here, Ken. Well, you know, I love the podcasting format, having different voices and different accents. And there is a need for that y'all to be in this podcast because I love having y'all here. I'll make sure it makes an appearance. All right, well, why don't we get started with a case? So a 50-year-old male presents to the emergency department with left lower quadrant abdominal pain. The patient is seen by an advanced practice provider, an APP, and he wants to know if being seen by an APP alters his chance of getting some sort of diagnostic testing or hospital admission. Well, SGM listeners will know that we covered the use of advanced practice providers, or APPs, on SGM number 308. That SGM hot off the press episode asked how the productivity of APPs compare to emergency physicians and what is the impact on emergency department operations. The key result from that study, which included 13 million ED visits, was that physicians were more productive than PAs and NPs. The SGM bottom line was that increasing APP coverage had minimal effect on ED flow and safety outcome based on the data. Over the past two decades, the use of APPs has increased and APPs have significantly truncated medical training. They have about two years or so of, of medical training and practice experience compared with the traditional four years of medical school and then three to four years of residency for emergency medicine. And there's been a concern about postgraduate training of NPs and PAs in the ED. And there's a joint statement on the issue that was published back in 2020 by a number of organizations. The American Academy of Emergency Medicine, the AAEM, has a position statement on what they refer to as non-physician practitioners that was recently updated. And then the American College of Emergency Physicians, or ASAP, has a number of documents discussing APPs in the ED. The difference in training between emergency medicine physicians and APPs, it's well recognized. One concern that some people have is that some APPs may compensate for this training gap by increasing the testing that they order. And so that brings us to the clinical question of today's podcast. Is emergency department evaluation by an APP associated with higher test utilization and hospitalization compared with evaluation by a physician? And so what's the reference, Lauren? 
This is Pines et al. Emergency Physician and Advanced Practice Provider Diagnostic Testing and Admission Decisions in Chest Pain and Abdominal Pain, Academic Emergency Medicine, January 2021. All right, let's go through the PICO, uh, the Population Intervention Comparison and Outcome. What was the population in this study? In this study, they included all emergency department patients who had a chief complaint of chest pain or abdominal pain, and they were triaged as the emergency severity index, the ESI, two, three, or four, so not the most emergent, which is a one, or the least emergent, which is a five, who were seen independently by either an APP or emergency physician. And that's an important distinction because this wasn't everyone who presented to the emergency department and whether they were worked up by a physician or an APP, they were specifically looking at a chief complaint of chest pain or abdominal pain. There were a number of exclusions, and I'll list those in the show notes. What was the intervention? Uh, If a patient was evaluated by an APP. And then they compared it to whether or not they were evaluated by a physician. Let's go through the outcomes. What was the primary outcomes? The primary outcomes were uh, laboratory tests, EKGs, imaging studies, as well as hospital admissions, which did include transfer to other hospitals and observation admissions. And how about their secondary outcomes? Uh, Testing based on evidence-based practice. As mentioned earlier, this is an SGEM (laughs) odd off the press episode, which means we have the lead author on the show. Dr. Jesse Pines is a National Director of Clinical Innovation at U.S. Acute Care Solutions and a professor of emergency medicine at Drexel University. In this role, he focuses on developing and implementing new care models, including telemedicine, alternative payment models, and also leads the USACS opioid program. Welcome back to the SGEM, Jesse. Ken, thanks again for having me, and Lauren, great to be on with you. Now, I wasn't on the uh, the last SGM hop, uh, Dr. Pines. What kind of feedback did you get from that episode discussing APPs in the ED? So it's, thanks for asking that question, Lauren. It's interesting. I've been doing health services research in emergency medicine for more than 15 years now, and I have never received such a strong reaction from the general emergency medicine community as we had with this last article. You know, there are obviously sort of two camps uh, on this issue, the APPs, as well as physicians, as well as a lot of politics behind this. And it was fascinating that uh, some of the comments that came in um, about the article and, you know, really on on two sides, um, you know, a lot of comments about people's own individual practice, some of the limitations of the article, which again, is is all, is all, all fair game as well as uh, some really, really good comments about, you know, maybe things that we, that we, that we could look at or, or could have looked at differently uh, in our study. So overall, it was a, a very interesting conversation. And because there was such vigorous post-publication peer review, we invited you back to look through your next article looking at APPs. So could you read your own conclusions from the abstract and then we'll get into the quality checklist. Sure. So our conclusion statement from this article was, we demonstrate that care delivered in the ED by advanced practice providers and emergency physicians for patients matched on complexity and acuity presenting with chest pain and abdominal pain chief complaints is largely similar 
with respect to diagnostic test utilization and admission decisions. Future research should continue to explore the optimal use of advanced practice providers in the ED and the best ways to deploy this expanding part of the US ED workforce. All right, Lauren, let's go through the quality checklist for observational studies, and we've got 11 questions. My second favorite number. First question, did the study address a clearly focused issue? It sure did. And did the authors, like Dr. Pines and his colleagues, use the appropriate method to answer their question? Yes, they did. Do you think they recruited the cohort in an acceptable way? Uh, this one, there's just a little uncertainty on free text fields for chest pain and abdominal pain chief complaints were used. A list of these were provided. And so these complaints may overlap with various pathologies. Um, so there, there might be some difference there. All right. The fourth question was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias. And the exposure, back to the PICO, I should have said instead of intervention, I should have said exposure. And so that was being seen by an advanced practice provider. Was it accurately measured to minimize bias? Uh, based on the manuscript text, it's I'm a little unsure. It's not clear if the APPs practice completely independently in every center or what degree of communication they had with physicians or input for orders or evaluation. And patients may be triaged to areas staffed by APP selectively, which uh, I did not see captured in uh, the manuscript data. Well, I'm sure we'll have some questions for Jesse about that. The next question is, was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? Uh, yes. Do you think the authors identified all important confounding factors? I think that this is hard, but my answer is going to be no. The authors controlled for a lot of things, for several clinician and patient level variables, uh, but some of them may not be complete. It's really hard in, in any study to, to control for every potential confounding factor. For example, past medical history, it may be inaccurately documented um, or in some charts, and it was only available in some institutions. Was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? It was precise were the results? The results consistently favored that either physicians ordered more tests or there was no difference in diagnostic test ordering between physicians and APPs. Do you believe the results? Yeah, I, I do. I do in this, in this population, in this practice setting. Can the results be applied to the local population in particular, to your local population? Yeah, I was going to say, I guess it depends on which local population. So it, it, I think it depends. Uh, we have a lot of involvement in the care that our APPs uh, deliver, partially because they, you know, I work overnight shifts. And so they staff with very high acuity patients. And so there's there's a lot of supervision there, um, a lot of input and a lot of back and forth, similar to when working with residents. Um, so it will very much, I think, depend on the sort of local milieu. Oh, I love that answer. It all depends. All right, the 11th question, the final question. Do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? This one, it's hard to say because the literature is just is just scant here. A prior study did find that APPs ordered more diagnostic tests, but this was, this was a much, much smaller study. Um, and it looked at all diagnoses, not these narrow diagnoses that sort of have uh, what you might expect to be ordered similarly amongst patients. All right, that's the checklist. Let's dig into some of the key results. The data was collected over three years, from 2016 to 2019, so it's recent data. 
and it was from around 90 facilities with over 1,000 APPs and more than 1,500 emergency physicians. There were close to 700,000 patient visits for chest pain. 12% were seen by APPs. Then there were close to a million patient visits for abdominal pain. And in this situation, about 20% were seen by APPs and 80% seen by physicians. Lauren, what was the key result we pulled out of this study? There, there, wasn't, there wasn't much difference between APPs and physicians for laboratory imaging studies or admissions, with APPs being slightly lower for most uh, all of the outcomes. Yeah, and physicians tended to see older patients, those with more comorbidities, and had higher admission rates. In contrast, APPs tended to see younger patients with less comorbidities and lower admission rates. In this study, they did some um, propensity weighting and adjusted the treatment effects. And once they did that, it showed that being seen by an APP either reduced the probability or did not have a statistically significant impact on the probability of having a laboratory test or imaging ordered in comparison with physicians. And this was consistent overall and among discharge ED visits, including um, when they did some models that contained past medical history. Well, that runs through the key result. Now we're going to bring Jesse back in to talk nerdy. Oh, I love talking nerdy. Are you ready for five more questions? You know the drill, right, Jesse? You've been on the program before. Are you ready for our five nerdy questions? I'm ready, Ken. And in typical fashion, I snuck in a few extra ones, but kept the number to five. So I have this pre-question, and this, is, this isn't one of the five. This is just a pet peeve. I don't mind studies having multiple outcomes measured, but to label labs, imaging tests, ECGs, and admissions as, quote, the primary outcome, Jesse, I mean, I've got you on video here. You're old enough to know the movie Highlander. There can be only one. Primary outcome. Or, I guess you could use the, uh, the Princess Bride reference, primary outcome? I don't think it means what you think it means. That's a great question. And we, we did actually carefully think about that. Uh, our, our, really, our two primary outcomes were broadly laboratory testing um, and, and admission. We, we did use multiple outcomes, and it did allow us to uh, answer multiple study questions simultaneously in order to adjust for that fact. So traditionally in research, we use a p-value of 0.05 to say that something is statistically significant. The problem when you look at multiple outcomes is that just by chance, if there's a 5% chance of accepting the hypothesis, uh, if, if it's incorrect, you start multiplying that multiple times, then that it's, at some point you, you're looking at a whole lot of outcomes and you're gonna be accepting your research hypothesis incorrectly about 5% of the time. So the way that we adjusted for that in this study is using now here's a nerd word the Bonferroni correction, which is what we what what you do is you take the total number of outcomes, and 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 that becomes the denominator of the p-value cutoff. So basically, you take the 0.05 divided by the number of outcomes, and that becomes a new p-value cutoff for which you say that something is significantly different. And we did that for both outcomes, and that that was our criteria for deciding whether or not something was significant. Well, Jesse, welcome to the nerd zone. 
I love you explaining that. And I know, yes, SGMers, I do get a bit pedantic about the whole primary outcome thing. So let's move on to our formal five questions. And the first one is, this is an observational study. And one of the main limitations of this study design is that you can't assign causality. And although you stratified by age and did this inverse propensity score weighting, which a friend of mine referred to uh, propensity score matching as statistical jiu-jitsu, there could be confounding factors impacting the result. Absolutely, Ken. So in any health services research study where you're looking at big data, you, you try to match uh, people based on observable factors. But what, what you don't have in these big data sets is the unobserved factors. So really the only way to truly match based on unobserved factors is to do a randomized trial, which in this study we didn't do. Uh, however, the issue of unobserved confounding is an issue in more broadly in, in health services research. So absolutely, that, that is a limitation of this study. One, one uh, question I had reading the manuscript was the accuracy of exposure measurement. And I touched on this briefly in sort of the critical appraisal. It, the big data sets are, are great because they allow us to look at massive amounts of information. And one problem with this can be the level of granularity of the data. And I'm not familiar with this data set that y'all use. And it wasn't entirely clear reading the manuscript methods, how the exposure, which was whether the APP saw the patient or not, was determined and whether to know was there any involvement um, in the physician in the care of that patient um, and when the APP saw that patient. And some EDs patients may be seen by APPs primarily or even solely, completely independently. Um, and in others, physicians see, evaluate, sometimes talk to, and may sort of backseat drive um, some to help disposition the patient. So, uh, you know, these combinations may make the exposure a little more opaque without knowing how this data set uh, was, was looked at and, and put together. Lauren, that's also a great question. So we, we also really thought about that a lot in this study. And the, what we were trying to avoid was, now another big research word, Ken, is the word of contamination, where the primary exposure may be uh, not perfect. So clearly, when a, when a physician sees a patient and there's no APP involvement, that, that exposure is completely uncontaminated. When it comes to an APP saying, seeing a patient, Lauren, you're saying that maybe there was a discussion there, maybe the physician actually saw the patient. Well, what we tried to do in the study is actually exclude any patients that were seen by both the emergency physician and the APP together. Overall in our visits, that's about 1.4% of our visits. And actually in our data set, we, we actually have great data on who actually saw the patient because we looked at who was on the schedule, uh, we looked at who actually billed for the patient and, and to the extent of what, to which the note uh, was, was, was written uh, and whether or not there actually was an in-person uh, evaluation by that physician. So that really at any time there was an in-person evaluation and, and it was suggested in the note, again, which is the, a minority of our data set, that was actually systematically excluded from this. So really our goal was to look at primarily where there was an independent assessment by the APP or the physician. However, you're, Lauren, you're absolutely right. We can 100% rule out that there, there, there was not a side discussion with the physician that maybe was, hadn't, was not documented properly in the note. 
Well, I just want to say that we are not expecting perfect data. The data is what it is, and there it's it's a bit messy at times, and so we accept that. I don't want you to get the impression that we're expecting perfection when we're going through these papers. The third issue we wanted to talk about was protocolization or protocolized care. Most of the patients, greater than 90%, presenting with a chief complaint of chest pain were adults. Now, often they're being worked up to rule out a concern of acute coronary syndrome or ACS or PE, pulmonary embolism. These tend to be very protocolized workups. And there also is this zero-miss culture in some areas when it comes to myocardial infarctions or PEs. You can't miss one, apparently, in some areas. So it wasn't surprising to me that you didn't find much variability in these practices of patients presenting with chest pain. Great question, Ken. So there are a couple of research issues to mention here. Then the first is generalizability. So in our company that, you know, that where we use the data from our company to look at the study, there is a lot of protocolization when it comes to taking care of chest pain patients, working up PE, to some degree abdominal pain workups. And that, that really gets to the generalizability of the study outside of the U.S. acute care solutions where th there is that protocolization. So if, if care is not protocolized at the institution, you, you may not see some of the similar results. The, the second issue is this, this sort of regional zero-miss culture, which we also did really control for that in our analysis and in, in the inverse propensity weights. We actually did use what's called a facility fixed effect. Uh, so, so basically, we did control for the indi individual facility there, uh, which would control for the local practice environment. So we, we touched on this a bit with the other questions, but just, you know, kind of going through the manuscript, one thing that, that in the other ports also sort of touched on our, our mind was about supervision. It says in the publication that all APPs had some degree of physician supervision and, and none were practicing independently. But in those cases, we wouldn't expect to find much difference between APPs and physicians in those cases. But it also sounds like they were practicing in, they were seeing the patients independently, but not practicing independently. Is that correct? That, that's correct. Really, none of, uh, none of the sites used in the study have total uh, independent practice of the APPs. There is always uh, at least one physician who is available on site for questions if needed. So, so that's, that's absolutely right. This is not a study of independent APP practice. The fifth and final point we wanted to get to was about patient-oriented outcomes, or POOs. It could be argued that a number of tests that are done are not very patient-oriented outcomes. Does the patient really care how many tests they're having done? Well, I guess depending on their insurance status in the United States. But a stronger case could be made about admission to hospital as being much more focused as a patient-oriented outcome. However, I noticed in this paper, you didn't look at things like safety defined as mortality or morbidity. Can you comment on that? So another great question, Ken. So in our previous paper that we did a couple of months ago on SGEMHOP, we, we did specifically look at that, um, where we looked at the percentages of APPs at the ED day level and whether or not that was associated with 
any differences in some of the safety outcomes that, that are observable in our data set, specifically 72-hour return, return admissions, incident reports, and that sort of thing. We did not look at morbidity and mortality, um, so that is a limitation there. But in that prior study, we actually did not find any association between a, a, a higher or lower level of APP involvement uh, in the ED and any safety outcomes. Well, those are our five nerdy questions. Ken, I do, I do have one more question. I'm going to throw you off here. I know five is your favorite number, but I've got a sixth question for you, Dr. Pine. What, you know, we went, we went through our questions, but my question to you is what, what did we miss? What else do you want to add about this study, this paper? Thanks, Lauren. So, you know, through, through the, the process of publishing this work, uh, again, this has probably been some of the most controversial, politically controversial health services research I've been involved with in my entire career. And I just wanted to say that, you know, on behalf of the U.S. Acute Care Solutions Research Group, that we are researchers uh, and we are not biased by uh, our study questions or our study results. Uh, we, we go into projects like this one and, and others with the an anticipation of publishing whatever we find. In our first paper, we uh, our findings were not as popular with the APP community because uh, I think it bucked some widely held beliefs around APP productivity and the difference between that and physicians. In this paper, I, I think it really challenges a, a, a broader question of whether APPs um, use uh, overuse admissions and, and test ordering in the emergency department. But from the perspective of conflict of interest, we, we are primarily approaching this as uh, as as researchers, and we we publish whatever we find, wh whether or not it, it benefits our uh, business model or not. We are we are approaching this purely academically. Well, I think you and your research group get big kudos for doing that, for asking important questions, and then publishing the data. Here's what we found, and then you can go discuss right in post uh, publication peer review online, in social media. Discuss it, but the data is what the data is and you're throwing it out there. So I, I really like that you're doing that. So congratulations to you and kudos to your uh, research group for doing that. Those were the five, six, thanks Lauren, nerdy questions. All right, before we go on in this podcast, I have a bonus feature for you. Last time I did a show on APPs, I was correctly called out for not having an APP on an SGM episode that looked at APPs in the ED. Well, this is a demonstration that I respond to your feedback. So here we have my good friend Martha Roberts' views on this episode and this study. Now, Martha has been on the SGM a couple of times before. She was on episode 307, talking about buffing up the lidocaine. And then in episode 273, looking at buddy taping for boxers fractures. Martha is a critical care and emergency care triple certified nurse practitioner currently living in California. She's the host of EM Boot Camp that takes place in Las Vegas when we're not in COVID times and is a faculty member for the Center for Continuing Medical Education. She writes a blog called the 
proceduralist, and she just started a new podcast with a PA, Mike Sharma, called The Two Views. So here we have Martha Roberts' view on this paper and our episode. Hi, Ken, and thanks for letting me weigh in on another episode of The SGEM. I mean, your last APP paper didn't have an APP opinion, but that's cool. I'm just going to weigh in super heavy on this one just for spite. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just happy to be part of a collaborative team that not only works on projects like this with you, but satisfies my bigger mission, and that is to have everyone on the same team in the ER when I'm working clinically. So I'm going to say right off the bat, APPs and physicians in this study ordered roughly the same number of diagnostic tests for a large population of patients, and it did not matter if they were an APP or physician. Okay, so let's look at the paper. I like that there was a PA amongst the MDs as the author. Would have been nice to see an MP, but what I've come to realize is that some institutions only hire PAs or only hire NPs. It depends on many factors like billing, the group's overall mission, and understanding of the roles, etc. I'd like to note the other study these authors did studied a national ER group with a care model combining increasing APP use with focused education programs, along with local ER physician oversight, and they had no impact on ED flow, quality care, or outcomes, and did not provide economies of scale and staffing costs, which was, of course, the paper you covered before. But with that being said, I like the way this paper hashed out diagnostic testing for ER clinicians. But this is my first point. In either case, an ER APP, either an MP or a PA, are trained to see ER patients. They approach patients in a similar, maybe not the exact same fashion, but when it comes to chest pain and abdominal pain, there are a few accepted and appropriate ways to do these workups. I would say that physicians and APPs both would use the resources the same if they had not read the results of this study, but I was right. This is because physicians train APPs, and APPs use the same medical approach to work up the chest pain, work up the abdominal pain patient, as a physician would. For example, an APP would know the standard tests for chest pain workup often include, may not be limited to, troponins, CBC, BMP, potentially a lipase, maybe a D-dimer. They would calculate a heart score, do an EKG, chest x-ray, potentially that dreaded urinalysis. The AHA has a pretty strict guideline that either a physician or APP can follow. And these algorithms that all clinicians can use are universal. So when it comes to choosing those workup items, the information and provided pathways are out there. When it comes to abdominal pain, the same is true. Although I find the differential a bit more bizarre when it comes to abdominal pain, because of course, abdominal pain can really be chest pain or a sign of something cardiac. So that puts abdominal pain in a higher level of diagnostic resources, at least for me. I will say, however, that the approach is the same. You consider the complaint, you do the workup. If anything, I would add that the physicians do more of a workup because oftentimes APPs conference and collaborate with a physician during a chest pain or abdominal pain workup, and physicians might add something on to the plan. Take note, though, cases that collaborated with an ER physician were excluded in this particular study. But anyway, one may argue that APPs may do more testing because they don't know as much as a physician or compensating for something else. But that simply is not always true. I find that to be the complaint of many physicians who don't like working with APPs. But in reality, I just go back to the simple diagnostic pathways, workups, algorithms, papers, literature that all clinicians, not just physicians, can use. Heck, I mean, nurses are putting these workups in in triage, and half the time those patients don't even get orders by the physician or the APP because they're all completed when they get back into the department. But 
the study did not at all say whether a protocol was used. I digress. The bottom line is this. The paper talked about diagnostic resources and the conclusion revealed diagnostic testing and hospitalization rates for chest pain and abdominal pain between APPs and physicians is largely similar. APPs do not have observably higher use of ED and hospital resources. I could end there, but the one interesting thing I found from this paper was that the authors concluded that APPs tend to see lower acuity patients, younger patients, those with fewer comorbidities, but APPs in this study did evaluate a considerable portion of high-risk chest pain patients and high-risk abdominal pain. I think that APPs tend not only to see more chest pain and abdominal pain in general, but they do it because of the very reason I said in the beginning. They are good plans of attack that exist for going to look at these patients and diagnostic reasoning that may allow a clinician to do a good solid workup. That workup is essentially the same whether you're an MD, a DO, an APP, or even an RN. What you do with the information once resulted is a different story, of course. The interpretation of your final findings, physical exam, and patient as a whole. One of the other things the paper talked about were admission rates. The results showed that physicians had twice as many admitted or transferred patients than APPs. This would make sense if APPs are saying lower acuity and fast-track patients. APPs also care about quality, utilization, and cost of testing. I would go even as far to say that APPs can see chest pain and abdominal pain with confidence of a workup and plan, even if they are complex, because of the growing ER training of APPs with both radiological readings, use of bedside ultrasound, high sensitivity testing of troponins, EKG interpretation, etc. The bottom line for this particular paper and for me is that APPs simply don't compensate for suggested shortcomings and order more tests than physicians. They don't admit more or less or transfer patients more frequently than not. I think some physicians might think that they do because they're underskilled, fearful of missing something, or hang their hat on just doing more tests, but that simply ain't true. You don't need a paper to prove it. Just have a conversation with your APP. That's the goal, isn't it? To collaborate? Anyway, thanks, Ken. Keep fighting the good fight. That's all I got to say about that for now. Until next time. Now we're going to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. And we generally agree with the author's conclusions on this paper. And how about giving an SGEM bottom line? In patients presenting to these emergency departments with chest pain and abdominal pain, physicians and APPs had similar practice patterns with regards to test ordering and admission rates. All right. And can you resolve the case that you presented at the start of this podcast? Sure. The patient has a workup for his abdominal pain, including labs and eventually a CT abdomen pelvis. And it turns out he's got uncomplicated diverticulitis and you discharge him with a prescription for the appropriate antibiotics. Now, I did put a note in my show notes here that that's what we do in Canada. You know, we see these patients with this uncomplicated diverticulitis diagnosis and do usually discharge them home on oral antibiotics. Is that similar to what you're doing in the United States? It is. You know, there, there has been uh, some, some gastroenterology guidelines stating that perhaps we don't need to treat all uncomplicated diverticulitis with guidelines. We are, in fact, still treating them um, with antibiotics. And as long as they're uh, not septic, not perforated, and can uh, tolerate oral intake in those cases, we actually, this is one case where our practice patterns may align. I love it when we come together on common ground. 
How are you going to take this information, Lauren, and clinically apply it? So I'm unsure. You know, we don't have high quality data to inform us on the impact of APPs um, in the emergency department. This data is really is really a huge amount of data, but it does come from one large emergency department group that is different uh, than my my personal practice setting. So it may lack external validity to other practice environments, just depending on sort of where you practice. So what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside? Odds are it's probably not going to matter whether you see an APP or the physician. Both are probably going to have similar practice styles. And the APP is, you know, currently in the United States in the emergency department will be supervised by an attending physician. And now it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. Last week's winner was Kalman Barkin, an EMT from Summersworth, New Hampshire. They knew the term blinding came from an investigation into the practices of Dr. Franz Anton Mesmer, and the trials that they conducted included blindfolding the participants. What's the Keener Contest question this week, Lauren? When was the first nurse practitioner program started? Well, if you know when the first nurse practitioner program was started in the United States, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Well, it's now your turn, SGMers. What do you think of this episode on APPs in the ED? We got a lot of feedback last time. Tweet your comments to Jesse Pines. Uh, use the hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for him and his team? You can ask them on the SGEM blog. And like always with these SGEM HOP articles, the best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. Also, don't forget those of you who are subscribers to Academic Emergency Medicine, you can head over to the AEM homepage, get CME credit for this podcast in the article, and the process will be on the SGEM blog. Hey, and exciting news. You can get CME credits now. You can earn CME credits now for all the SGEM episodes, and it's as simple as one, two, three. So if you're already listening to the SGEM and you want to get credit for doing that, just click on the link in the show notes and you can start earning CME credits for doing what you're already doing. Well, thank you, Jesse, for, I don't know if I should say brave enough, for coming back on the SGEM after your previous experience and talking about your latest hot off the press publication. Thanks, Ken and Lauren. It's been my pleasure to come back. And it's great to have you on the SGEM HOP team, Lauren. Always good to talk with you and, and brilliant researchers, Ken. All right, now it's time to finish the show. Jesse, you know, it's the tagline time. All right, here it is, Ken. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you've heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to you all next week. Well, what a difference. A day made And the difference